use the power of entertainment. So we want to be inspired. We want to see the kind of gravitas and the depth of it. And we want to see the compelling and brilliant story. Hey guys, I'm Carlos Miranda, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I started IG six years ago, and we're a London-based strategy and management consultancy in the social impact space. What that means is that we specialize in philanthropy, corporate impact, and fundraising advice. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers, and it's part of our mission to help them better understand each other. And so you have what donors want. In each episode, we'll interview a different kind of major donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? We're going to give you this advice straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel stephenson Chef, and I'm a colleague of Carlos's from IG. I'm also the producer of What Donors Want, and I'm really excited for this next episode. We spoke with Adam Askey from Comic Relief, and one thing I'll note is that we spoke with Adam via Skype, so sometimes the Wi-Fi gets a bit dodgy, which is always what happens when you have a conversation with someone in central London. Uh, but what are you going to do? It's an excellent interview, and we're thrilled to have him on the show. I'm joined here now by my colleague, Emily Collins-Ellis, who's going to tell us a little more about today's guest. Clearly not an important colleague, because you've waited until the third episode to invite me on, <laughs> but that's fine. Well, it's a popular podcast, so there's a bit of a cue. Well, I'm going to be the most popular co-host, so that's fine. <laughs> so our guest today is Comic Relief, which is a charity that really doesn't need an introduction. It's a household name in the UK and a growing presence in the US. You probably know them from Red Nose Day or Sport Relief. They're telethon fundraising appeals which have raised over a billion pounds since the charity's founding in 1985. Comic Relief then takes these funds and grants them out to vulnerable communities around the world. Today we're speaking to Adam Askew. He's a Comic Relief veteran. He joined them in 2011 and now he's the head of funding partnerships. If you're a UK fundraiser like I've been or if you grew up in the UK like me, the token Brit on the IG team, chances are you've watched the show, watched celebrities making fools out of themselves, submitted an application for them for funding at one point, spoken with Adam himself, or made a fool out of yourself in a red nose on Red Nose Day. Should we give him a call? Let's do it. So welcome, Adam, to What Donors Want. Thank you so much for being on the show. We're so thrilled to have you here. Thanks for having me. So for our first section of the podcast, we've been doing this with all of our donors, and it's basically, so it's an informal get-to-know-you speed round of questions, which is for fun, but also to promote the idea that foundations and donors are people, and that in order to fundraise successfully, you should approach them as such. Are you ready? Yes, go for it. Okay, perfect. So first question. If you could go back in time to any era for one day, which era would you choose? Uh, Roman Empire. Just because they were mad and creative and did loads of really cool stuff. Yeah, definitely. Uh, which Hogwarts house would you be in? I think I'd love to say Gryffindor, but I think the reality is, is I'd probably be Slytherin. <laughs> I think everybody wants to be Gryffindor. <laughs> if you could have any superpower, what would it be? I'd have to be able to fly. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, what was the last book that you read? I've just finished it. I, technically, I've got about a chapter to go, but I think I'm going to let this. I'm going to let it. I'm going to let it pass with your permission. But uh, Trevor Noah's uh, book, Born a Crime. Oh, interesting. I'm really wanting to read that one. What was the last show that you binged? Uh, Game of Thrones. 
If the world was going to end tomorrow, which it feels like it might, uh, what would your last meal be? I think it would have to be, because I've got to think, I've got, I've got three kids and um, my lovely wife, and I think uh, we'd have to have some sort of, we're, we're all a big fan of the Sunday roast, so I think if we could all stretch it to all do that together, I think that would be my, my, my favourite favourite thing. You'd have to have all the trimmings, though. Coffee or tea? Tea. Ditto. For all of a similar... <laughs> I get bullied on that and the IG team for being the only non-coffee drinker. Um, and this one also splits the IG team right down the middle. Brittany or Christina? I mean, can I can I go Lady Gaga? I guess not, probably. I'd have to probably say Christina. Ditto. Again. I don't know how feeling that is, because I would have just gone Beyonce or Lady Gaga as my third choice. Oh, I mean, Beyonce, of course. That's not even an either-or question. That's just a given. <laughs> Thank you for indulging us in that. Um, so our second part of the interview is going to be a deep dive into Comic Relief and uh, the grant making work that you do. So as the head of funding partnerships at Comic Relief, what are your primary responsibilities? So, so my main job really is to kind of lead and develop the kind of uh, the strategy around our partnerships work for, for the organisation. So what that really means is how do we use women at incredibly privileged position that the majority of our money comes from the British public. I mean, my job is really to use that money and how can I then leverage that to get more money from, you know, other institutions, trusts and foundations, working in partnership on a common strategy or goal. So that might be education, it might be health, it might be working with young people. It can be across a whole broad range of our strategic areas. Great, thank you. Um, so Comic Relief's grant-making process um, on your website has a very clear six-step process outlined. Um, which starts with submitting a proposal. Um, since the interaction with the program officer within Comic Relief often comes after this step, uh, what can a fundraiser do to stand out from the written process? So if you're deciding between two projects that equally meet Comic Relief's criteria on paper, is there anything that a fundraiser could do to stand out in that context? Yeah, firstly, I think, I mean, I mean we... It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a tough market, isn't it? I mean, you get you get a lot of applications across from across a very relative range of organisations doing brilliant work. I think the thing that I always kind of look for, and I, and I mean, it, it, we are a criteria-based assessor. So, firstly, you know, let's just kind of you know cut to the chase. You have to have the criteria to get funding. You need to meet the criteria that the program or or the area of work you're trying to apply for is looking for. But but. Take that as a given. I think the bit that then you look for is just tell us a story, inspire us. You know, we are, as like you said at the top of your program, we're 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 human beings, and particularly for an organisation like Comic Relief, we're a, we're an entertainment-based organisation. We use the power of entertainment, so we want to be inspired. We want to see the kind of gravitas and the depth of it, and we want to see that you're really thinking about how you're lifting those words off a page to tell a compelling and brilliant story. Absolutely. Um, so after this step one, which is that initial proposal submission, it says on your website that you then invite shortlisted grantees to submit a full proposal. So what gets a proposal yeah. onto this next step, onto the shortlist, and what percentage might get through? So we try and, we try and minimize, um, we try and take the, if you get through to the next stage, essentially, we really, you know, we, we're taking you through because we genuinely believe you can be funded by Comic Relief. So we don't, you know, where possible, we don't want to waste, you know, partners' time because, of, because at the end of the day, you know, we know the pressure it is you know, filling out application forms and the pressure organisations are on in the, in the kind of current funding climate. But So we, we firstly trying to minimise that kind of time, the number of people coming through. And then, you know, we 
we then kind of are looking for that bit that are you going to be funded? You know, can you make it through some of our processes and assessments? Can you deliver? Can you really deliver the work? Because really at stage one, we're just, we're assessing that kind of talent, if you like, to be able to, that ability to deliver, that capacity and uh, to deliver on the work. And if we believe that, then, and you meet the criteria, then it's stage two. And then, you know, you get more into the kind of nuts and bolts of the kind of, you know, organisational um, kind of assessments that we have to do as a, as a funder. Um, and just going on from the uh, trying to reduce the load on, on grantees, if you're only taking them through, if you, um, if you think that they're likely to get money, uh, having been a, a fundraiser in a previous charity that I've worked for and applying to Comic Relief, I know that the, the final proposal process can be quite long and detailed. Um, is, yeah. there, is, there a, is there anything in particular that you would say a charity should or already have and be prepared with before they begin the application process? And are there any instances where charities should not apply with, with everything you've just said in mind? Yeah, I think firstly, I think it's worth saying that, you know, we are currently having a having a bit of a kind of a review and kind of look at our, our, our systems and processes from that point of view, from making sure that the charity partner, it's as if we get what we need to have the assurance of spending, you know, the British, the British pounds that, that's raised from the public as well as it can be, but also knowing that that's, that's hard. We want to make that as kind of easy as possible, but I think every organization should really, and it, it's a simple, it's a, it's a kind of thing that your teacher teaches you at a your exam question is read the, read that you're eligible before going through the process because you know that eligibility we have we put all of our guidance notes and everything up front we put that really clearly to try and make that super clear you'd be so surprised how far people can get down a application process before having read those very basics within the guidance and or trying to kind of you know mission creep a little bit and try and get some of their kind of wider work to fit within the within the pillar or the strands and and don't get me wrong, I know having, you know, also sat on the other side, uh, it can be a deeply frustrating experience when the funder isn't quite fitting your your program. But I, I can promise you that, you know, if you kind of stick to your, your the program area that you're you're looking for and you find the right funder for you, you know, your, your partnership with that funder is going to be far more rewarding and fruitful because you both understand and you're both in the same page from the, from the get-go. Yeah, I think that sometimes it can be a better fundraising practice to discount funders from your from your prospect list than it is to spend time, like you say, mission creeping towards guidelines that aren't quite a good fit for your organization. So what are the things that fundraisers have done that make your job easiest? And as well, going off of that, hardest. Yeah, so, I mean, the easiest ones is just where that, the kind of, those those four, four W's are kind of the what, why, where, and the kind of who is so clearly explained, you know, what you're doing, what's the, what does the program look like in that really short, succinct, kind of clear way, you know, why you're doing it, what's the reason, why, why do it, why them, what's, why, why this issue now, and then, you know, what's, where the geography is, and then who, who you're targeting, who you're working with, what does it look like, you know, given that real richness i think when you when those four kind of w's are really easily kind of digestible and it leaps out from the page they they do make your life as an assessor and as a as, a, as an application reader quite relatively straightforward i think sometimes when it's harder and i kind of use this as a kind of it's slightly frustratingly hard is that you know that 
when you're reading an application that this is a good application. You probably, you may even have had experience of that organization in the past, so you know that they even are a good organization, but they just haven't managed to craft the, the narrative in a way that, that gets you kind of energized and compelled and that while you might be able to know that, you know that either a second reader or a panel will kind of look at it in a different way. So that kind of sometimes makes it quite hard to you to build a case of why this over something that's been, you know, written in a slightly more kind of easy to digest way and, and a slightly more uh, kind of succinct way. And following on from that, um, what is the most common mistake that fundraisers make when applying for a grant? So you've mentioned that sometimes it's not meeting the criteria at all, but uh, what other other common mistakes that people make? I, I think there's a lot of a kind of square peg in round hole where you, you just... I think because of the drive, and listen, we funders are, the, are, are to blame in this as, as well, in that because you chase, you might chase the funding. And I think, you know, I think of an organisation that's that we that we're just about to fund actually in uh, in our HIV program. And you know, I think they they've been rejected from Comet Relief for a number of times. And actually, you know, we actually had an informal chat about what is it that they need to do and as you know get back to your core business get back to what you are you are you were founded on what your mission is what your trustees gave you your man, mandate to do and just be proud and, and brilliant at that and i think do that and at the same time don't forget to to tell the story of why you're so brilliant as well and what the work that you do with with whichever group it is and that and that and i think those mistakes while we get into this mindset of the kind of, you know, the outcomes and the log frames and all the monitoring and evaluation kind of jargon that goes with our sector at times. Sometimes the common mistake is just to forget, you know, forget the kind of, you know, the simple bits and actually get those bits really right, which is which is the kind of compelling narrative. Right, absolutely. Have there been any instances when a fundraiser has knocked it out of the park so much that they've convinced you to support something that's slightly more risky or unusual? And if so, what did they do to convince you to support them in this way? I mean, we get those. We get those all the time, which is what the one most wonderful thing about reviewing and, and reading applications is that you can you can sometimes just get that. But you completely counterintuitive to what you think you would you would be looking for. And then something just disrupts your disrupts your view and disrupts your kind of mindset. I think. While the criteria is, of course, the thing that we are led by as a, as a funder, I think, you know, you do also get gut instincts about about programs. It's a lot harder to get that gut instinct when you're reading it off paper, I'll be completely honest. Sometimes during a, if it's in a more proactive kind of model of grant making, or we might be doing a partnership with an organization which takes us to meet, you know, organizations in country or in, or in the local community, you know, that gut instinct is a lot easier to kind of, kind of draw upon because you can see the potential you can see the talent and it might be it might be a bit riskier i think of i think of a, a, our example of a, a, an organization we funded in zambia called bongo hive which is the first you know tech hub in in lusaka and you know that was that was not a that was not a straightforward you know straightforward application but because you knew how incredibly talented they were you knew what their mission and the drive of where they wanted to get to it allowed you to kind of you know push the limits of the criteria to allow to kind of make sure that something that you're passionate about could could also be funded. Comic Relief typically likes to give longer term support. 
And we are wondering, would you give a grant like this to a first-time grantee, or do you prefer to do tester sort of get-to-know-you-one-off grants before committing to that level of long-term support? Yeah, we, we do we do like to give long-term support. I think it's, it's really important. It's one of our kind of beliefs that, you know, part of some of the issues organisations have is that stability of funding and knowing, you know, that's the, the right for them and, and that, their, that their income stream is, is kind of, is, is more stable. The, the, the question about whether it, it kind of is, you know, a first-time organisation doesn't, doesn't really come into it too much for us, to be honest. We're very comfortable giving long-term organ, uh, grants to, to organisations who are first-time applicants of comic relief. I think the, the key bit for us is that, you know, we do a very stringent kind of organisational assessment where we're looking at the finances, we're looking at that kind of capacity to deliver and, and also what support we need to put in place as a funder, particularly in a long-term grant, to be able to help, whether it might be around a kind of child protection policy or it might be around a kind of learning strategy or it might be on an organisation development piece, you know, whatever the, the kind of development bit of it is, you know, we're really keen, particularly in some of those longer term grants, to make sure we build enough support in, you know, even if you're a first time applicant of Comet Relief, you, you're, you know, still very much able to get long term funding. And what are the common reasons that you wouldn't renew a long term grant? Yeah, I mean, there's the two obvious ones, which was, you know, simply that it wasn't performing as you as you might expect, or it wasn't getting the kind of gains you were hoping for. But I think the bit that I think we we look for and need to continue to look for more, and I think that's just not only comic relief, but I think the funding community more broadly is that you know is, has the organisation was it learning, was it growing, and is the next grant going to continue its growth and development as an organisation? Demonstration of that learning, growing, and developing often is what um, we're looking for when kind of renewing a, a, a commitment. Right, absolutely. And going off of that, would the, was there ever a case where a grantee, maybe, you know, they, the intervention isn't something that you would want to continue working on or they aren't taking it in that next stage of growth? Would you ever work with them to modify their program and then continue to support them in that way as more of a collaborative process? Or would you just say... Or would you just terminate the grant? We're, we're very much a collaborator as a, as a grant maker. I think, you know, of course, you know, there are instances when you, 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 need to, you need to terminate and you need to finish the agreement or something comes to its natural conclusion. But we're very much generally of the mindset that collaboration with our, you know, charitable partners is, is, the, is the right is the right mindset to have and the right way to to work in a in a responsible way as a, as a funder so we we will work through the kind of you know year three and year four of the of the grant and, and look at what options that might be and that might be also supporting them to get get the funding from another from another source or another stream so no it's, it's very much a it's very much a collaboration that's great so, um, as you know, at IG, we work with um, donors and, and, and foundations as well as charities on their fundraising. And one of the things that we do often with donors is help them to think through how to account for their stakeholders and their own donors in setting their grant-making strategy. And I'm interested to hear from you, because most of your money comes from the public, how that influences your grant-making policy um, in terms of criteria, in terms of programs, 
uh, if at all, uh, and, and how you how you account for that in your processes? I think I wouldn't be being honest if I didn't if it if it didn't influence us. It's certainly not the guiding principle of what we fund. I think that would be uh, that would be wrong in terms of how we spend the money. But of course, it it is one factor that you want to bear in mind. But that does not mean we couldn't we shy away from you know issues that maybe not particularly you know publicly popular for example so you know making sure we put the the need at the heart of of, of our criteria and our, our decision making is a is fundamental to what we do so it's a it's a matrix of filters really the public are a big stakeholder for ours they're one of you know if not our biggest stakeholders so we need to make sure that you know they're part of the the journey whatever it is we fund speaking as uh, the token Brit on the IT team who <laughs> grew up with Red Nose Day I think that you guys do a really good job of kind of, like you say, educating educating and entertaining people on issues that they may obviously have thought to support or known that they should support or needed support in the UK and internationally. So I think that, um, I can imagine it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, but I think that you certainly did a good job of educating me and entertaining me. <laughs> what is the one key thing that you want fundraisers to walk away with from this conversation? You know, we're dealing with really tough subjects and they're really tough um, things and change is hard, eh? It's a really hard thing to, to kind of deal with. But, you know, show us how by us giving you, you know, people's very hard-earned money, um, how is that going to push you on to achieve what you want? Be really clear about that. Really demonstrate it. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. I actually have one other question, yeah. if that's okay, just a curiosity, although I think it might be useful for listeners as well. I'd be interested to get some insight into how the process works within Comic Relief. So you've spoken a little bit about making people's jobs easier when they're having to kind of make the story jump off the page and, and, and see innovation when they're reading those applications. But I just want to get a sense for what what the day of a program officer in Comic Relief looks like. Are there people that have specific areas of expertise, specific areas of the country or the world? What what is what kind of portfolio size is, is a program officer within Comic Relief? dealing with you mentioned people needing to be empowered to advocate for, for their for their grantees for those applications internally so what what does that decision making process um, look like so the key moments we have is we have a independent set of uh, committees both on the UK and the international side and we have our trustees they are the ultimate uh, decision makers um, for comic relief and for the charitable charitable money. Before that stage, obviously, you have you have a number of kind of obviously assessment part of it, and then the grants officer or the, or the program officer's part in that is to kind of you know to is to kind of present that you know that case, and we do that in a number of different ways depending on the program. Sometimes we might have some advisory panels. So I think of our partnership with with GSK on health and Area. We work very closely with a with a wonderful set of advisors who scrutinise, you know, the applications that are coming in and give us a bit of challenge and we a bit of a critical friend role before they even get to a to a kind of a, a, a committee stage to make sure that we're we're absolutely kind of thinking of all the different different issues we can um, can have to tackle. Sometimes, in the case of our work with um, the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Trust, it's a youth panel that we engage with because I think we believe you know if you're working with young people, then to have young people part of the decision making process is really important. So I think that there, there's, there's, there's there's varied ways that we kind of uh, that we make those decisions before they get to the the, the kind of committee and 
trustee level, but they're always scrutinised either amongst peers or within independent um, kind of advisors that you bring in, particularly on different issues. I think in terms of the, the portfolio size that a, that, a, that a typical grants officer might kind of have, I think it, it can depend on the programme area or it can depend on the number of the size of grants that they that they might be managing. But, you know, anywhere between kind of, you know, 15 to, to, to 30 kind of grants size dependent is, is would not be would not be unusual within a within a kind of portfolio but we tend to bunch those portfolios around thematic areas great thank you that's really useful insight thank you that that's it from our end and um it's been it's been such a pleasure to have you on what donors want and we're very excited to share this with fundraisers yeah definitely it's uh it's, it's actually it's a really interesting process because we've been doing these interviews with a few people but as i said when we met last week comic relief has been like a, a funder for me uh, like in various jobs that i've been in previously and i feel like i have some insider knowledge because of that but not enough <laughs> not enough to be able to like predict what you were going to say so it's really fascinating for me to to hear great well, good talk. Now, I'll, I'll see you Thursday. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's the, the week of comic relief. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. And a huge thank you to Adam Askew for his generous time and advice. Thank you also to everybody who reached out with ideas for questions for us to ask. We really do love to hear from you, so please get in touch with other questions for our next guest. You can check us out online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors. That's advisors spelled the American way with an O. <laughs> and as always, we can be found at Mom with Coffee in Borough Market. And I'll be there drinking tea because I hate coffee. <laughs> and I kind of prefer tea too, to be honest. Don't tell Carlos. Thanks again for listening. See you soon. Thank you.